All right, good morning, everybody. My name's Dave, if we haven't met. I'm a, a pastor at Westgate Church just down the road, and we are good friends with you guys here. So grateful to partner with you guys and to be here with you guys. I'm going to ask you if you know a term. I'm going to say a term and say if you know it. Now, the young people in the room probably, they're going to know. Have you ever heard of the expression humble brag? Humble brag. You know what I'm talking about? Have you heard of this term? I was talking to Oprah and Tom Holland the other day about this. And uh, LeBron walks in, you know how he is. And he says to me, you know, look, you are the funniest person I know. And I know that we're both from Ohio and moved to California, but you're actually the greatest from Ohio. And like, what do you say to that? <laughs> I, it's so, you know, it's so embarrassing. That's humble brag. It's uh, using language that pretends to be humble, but in actuality is actually uh, making yourself look better. I, I, I love humble brags. They're so funny. Um, and uh, there's this moment. I, I saw a couple of these on uh, the internet. I want to share them with you. Uh, these are my favorites. Uh, they're just, they just reveal our ridiculousness. Here's one. Uh, this guy posted on Instagram genuinely forgot how much I love this photo of my niece. See, this is what he puts. Genuinely forgot how much I love this photo of my niece. And then he puts this picture. Yeah. <laughs> such a great photo of his niece. The way you can't see her face at all. Another one. I hate it when this happens. Can anyone else relate? LOL, geez. That's the third one today. SMH, LOL. Oh, that's just great. Another one, I blotted out who said it. Uh, somebody in this community. Uh, I'm kidding. My cheat day consisted of a cauliflower pizza. LOL, I hate myself. Someone teach me to be unhealthy. Ha ha ha. Uh, and one of my favorite, I love ironic humble brags because they're actually very funny. Uh, do you guys not know who LeVar Burton is? Uh, for those of you who are a certain age, he was in Star Trek. Uh, he was Geordie uh, LaForge. Uh, and for you younger folks, he was Reading Rainbow Guy. Very funny. This is what he posted on Instagram. It's a good night, he writes, for natural light in L.A. He lives in L.A. A good night for natural light in L.A. And then he posts this picture. with all of his Emmys in the background. That's all 21 of them. Uh, good day of natural light. Uh, the point is that this idea of humble bragging, uh, of, of saying things intentionally to make yourself look better is actually a very common human trait. It's about elevating ourselves. And we all do this. We all do this. We all use language and we all posture to elevate ourselves out of insecurity or because we know that we're not really all that we want to be. And so there's a sense of elevating ourselves. We do this, I do this, you do this. Uh, I noticed uh, whenever I would talk to anybody about television shows, when there was a, a reference to a television show, I would always preface it with, you know, my wife and I hardly watch any TV, but there's the show that we watch. Now, why did I say that? Because I don't want you thinking all I do is watch TV, right? And so I kind of couch it just to make sure you know that I 
I'm okay, right? Do you see what I'm saying? And in the social media world, of course, in the advent of the social media world, now this idea of elevating ourselves has been quantified. Back when I went to high school, young folks, we knew who the popular kids were, but we did not have numeric tabulations to prove it. (laughs) This idea of elevating yourself. There are ways to posture yourself that will get you more clicks, more likes. Nick Bilton, who was the director of a famous or or a fabulous uh, documentary called Fake Famous, put it this way. He said, likes translate to more followers, which is the current currency of the most important thing on earth today. What everyone seems to be obsessed with being famous, famous, fame, elevation, social status. This is where we are in our culture. And I'm not immune to it, and neither are you. And we swim in the culture of fame. We swim in the culture of self-elevation. You've seen this, but also you know this. This is where we are. And here's the good news, or perhaps it's the bad news. This is not new. Humans have been doing this forever, right? They have been doing this forever. I want to take you all the way back to the time of Jesus. There's a historian named Edwin Judge who put it this way. He said, humility in Greek and Roman ethics would be a degrading thing. To put yourself down to a level that you were not born to or that your standing in life did not require you to be in was disgraceful and debasing. There was no virtue in it at all. Humility or lowering oneself instead of elevating oneself was simply not an ethic that existed in the known world right around the time when Jesus was born. The most famous person to be born right around the time of Jesus besides Jesus is recorded in the Gospels of a guy named Caesar Augustus. He would become one of the most important and influential and powerful humans who have ever walked the earth, Caesar Augustus. And what he did is when he was in power, he would put out these coins. Coins were the way that the ancient world kind of spread information. It was the Instagram of the ancient world. And so he would mint these coins, and they would be circulated. And this is one of them. You can actually go online. Actually, you can go online and buy this coin from an auction house in London for 32,000 pounds. Is that dollar? No, it's probably more. Is that more than dollar? Anyway, 32,000 pounds of what? Fudge? Because that'd be cheap. And on this coin is the words, in Latin, divi favilis, which is about Augustus. This is his face. That's his inscription. And on the back is this Latin phrase, which simply means son of God. Augustus is saying to everyone, listen, you've heard it said that I'm the Caesar, but I say to you, I'm actually up there in the pantheon with the gods, the Greek gods. I'm a son of one of the gods. I'm in the pantheon. In fact, we've unearthed multiple statues of Caesar Augustus. Here's one. This is a fun one. Now, in in the ancient world, when a person was sculpted without shoes on without sandals that was a symbol that they were a god and look how caesar augustus puts them no shoes and and look who's hanging from this this person hanging from him is the greek god cupid 
Or maybe it's Hermes. I forget which one it is. But regardless, he's little, and look what he's doing. He's hanging on to Caesar Augustus' cloak. What is this communicating to everyone who sees it? And by the, this is a massive, like, 11-foot statue. You can go see it. I don't know where it is, but you can go see it. <laughs> I could make something up to make myself look better, but that would violate the tenets of this message. It's like, love. do you see what he's doing? Do you see what this statue is communicating to everyone who sees it? Who's big shot? Who's the king? Who's the son of God? In fact, this is what um, Virgil, the poet Virgil, who was on Caesar Augustus' payroll, wrote about it. Um, he said about Caesar Augustus that the, the whole Roman Empire was ringing with the advent of Caesar during the time of Jesus and then he wrote, the one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited. This is how Caesar Augustus was portrayed. Virgil populated these phrases. Virgil's the most important poet during this time period. So this would be like uh, a huge deal. The son of God. That's how Caesar Augustus, you talk about self-elevation, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Now, this is right around the time when another person would be born in very different circumstances. And I'm going to juxtapose Caesar Augustus with another person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, although Jesus is indeed the Son of God... And that title is not just ascribed to him, but that is actually his, his rea the reality of who Jesus is, the second member of the Trinity. Jesus did not often choose to refer to himself as the Son of God. Jesus, when he referred to himself, had one term he used far more than any other term. Do you know what it is? The Son of Man. The Son of Man is used in the Gospels. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man more than 80 times. In Matthew, it's 32 times. In Mark, it's 14. In Luke, it's 26. And in John, it's 10. More than 80 times, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is the, the, the nomenclature of choice that Jesus uses to refer to himself. When he ex is explaining to people who he is in this term, Son of Man simply means, and this is strange, just a human, a person. A person who is a man, a human. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus doing this? Because, see, in the ancient world, kings and emperors and pharaohs, what they do is they try to make themselves look really good. They call and refer to themselves as the son of God, kind of moving on the way up to try to show themselves as people who are um, high. You know, kings and emperors and pharaohs, it, it, they move upwards, and it's because they want to be elevated. And yet the one person who actually is God, Jesus, does he do this? He actually does the opposite. In humility, he calls himself the son of of man. Not that he is not. It seems like the one person in the world who, who has a right to a Messiah complex doesn't have a Messiah complex. Do you see how shocking this is? This is incredible. And this is where we get into Philippians. 
Paul is writing about this. And this is indeed one of the most exceptional and awe-inspiring aspects of Jesus. Philippians 2, Paul writes, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form or the essence of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be seized, grabbed, exploited, but emptied himself. I could write a whole sermon on just that phrase, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is one of the more staggering moments in all of scripture. This little passage where Paul is trying to articulate how mind-blowing, how soul-transforming, how world-shaping the reality of Jesus doing this is. Do you remember that moment in Matthew 20 when Jesus says this to his disciples who are fighting about greatness? Like, who's going to be first? Who's going to be first? Who's going to be first? Who's going to be first, right? What are they trying to do? Elevate themselves, right? Do you see what I'm saying? They're trying to elevate themselves. Who's going to be on your right hand? Who's going to be at the Feast of Forever? Who's going to be your VIPs, Jesus? Jesus calms them all down and says this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing. Gods in the ancient world came to earth to take or for curiosity, never to give. This is astonishing. In fact, there's a historian named John Dixon, who's Australian, who's written a number of books on this, including a fabulous book called Humilitas, which is the, the Latin word for humility, in which he says that Jesus is basically inventing a brand new virtue in the world. He's introducing to humanity a brand new virtue. The idea of someone powerful using that power, not for self-elevation, but to lower him or herself to help other people. He defines humility this way, and this is a helpful definition. He's a Christian, and so he puts it this way. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Let's just sit in that for a second, because that's very challenging. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Now, this idea of humility, of not self-elevation, but self-lowering, is present in nearly, think about it, every single part of Jesus' story. Think about how he was born. 
Do you see why that's so important to include that God himself is born? That in itself is astonishing. But what's even more astonishing is where he comes. Not even in a hospital. Not in a mansion. Not in the palace where kings should be born, right? But in a forgotten cave in an extra room in a stable filled with beasts and the stench of animals and dung laid in a manger a feeding trough for animals do you see this is astonishing the more you reflect on this the more you see how far god went and what that shows about god what that shows about Jesus. Jesus did not consider equality with God and all that meant as something to be seized, grabbed, or exploited, but emptied himself. Where did all of that go? He gave it to us. His life was for, for us, for humanity. This is astonishing. This is astonishing. Now, this idea of humility, although it's a brand new virtue, is actually not a brand new virtue. As I was reflecting on this, this idea of someone using what they have to help other people is all through the Old Testament. It's the commands of God as he tries to instruct his people, the children of Israel, into how it is that they are to be faithful image bearers, faithful Selim, faithful, uh, faithful to him and as his people, as examples to the nations. He gives them all sorts of instructions. There was a, a professor that I had to read uh, in one of my seminary classes. It was on the book of, of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is all about the righteous and the wicked. It's this di dichotomy between those who are right with God and those who are not right with God. Those who are walking with the Lord and, 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 and showing his character and those who do not. And that juxtaposition was summed up by this guy. His name is Bruce Waltke. He's a famous Old Testament scholar. And he wrote this, this sentence in one of his commentaries that hit me like an arrow into my heart. He said this, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, and the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. That this is what it looks like. That sounds a lot to me like humility. This righteous, wicked kind of dichotomy is exactly what humility is. And what is Jesus willing to do? Disadvantage himself for the sake of not just his community, but the world. So this is an Old Testament idea that goes all the way back. Paul again writes this incredible words. Jesus Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. He took the form of what? Of a slave. And then being found in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John Dixon, writing again in the book Humilitas, writes this. He says, for the early Christians, the crucifixion 
was not evidence of Jesus' humiliation, but proof that greatness can express itself in humility, the noble choice to lower yourself for the sake of others. This is what the early Christians wrestled with. How could God come so low? How could God come and then not just violently take over or push aside his oppressors, but even be willing to die, and not just die any old way, but die via torture and then crucifixion, a slow, humiliating criminal's death? Why would God choose that way? And as the Christians, the early Christians wrestled with it, it was... The, the ideas that they came up with were, this is what true power is. To use what you have for others. And they, they must have remembered, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I don't think it's enough for us to just stare at Jesus' model and say, wow, although that is worthy of an entire morning, of an entire life. Jesus does this and instructs those who love and follow him to do the same. This gets real uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because we realize with the Spirit's help, how often our thoughts turn toward us. What is the opposite of humility? C.S. Lewis is really helpful here. He says, if you're ever with a really humble person, you won't notice that they're humble. You'll just notice that they took an awful lot of interest in you, and they were a joy to be around. Do you know people like this? Do you know people who are just a joy to be around? Who take a delight and let you know that they delight in you, that's humility. Have you ever met someone who's self-absorbed, though? They turn every topic to themselves. They chatter. It's like every time they meet with you, it's an, it's an opportunity for them to talk incessantly. This is the opposite. Because see, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone. Because the opposite of humility, if humility is others-focused, then what is pride? Self-focused. If humility is focused on God and his plans and living like him, then what is pride? It's the opposite. It's curving inward. When you think about yourself a lot, it's very difficult to be humble. Can I share some examples that are really uncomfortable? Great. Glad you asked. Look, and, and look, this is, and I want to be clear on this. Um, if I present myself as somebody who has all this together and I live humility perfectly, and out of all men, I'm the most humble, that's a farce. This, these verses, this reality about Jesus is so deeply challenging to me. Because if I am honest, as an only child, I do not think about other people a lot. I have been trained. 
by my only childness to think that I am the center of the world. I was both my grandparents' only grandchild. I'm the king of the world. <laughs> Do you see? But when I met Jesus and I saw his examples and I read the saints who reflected on his example and the saints cry out through the ages, Christians, we must be like our God. We must be like our Messiah. We must look like our King. We must show into the world and bring into the world the same ethical character as Jesus himself expressed. It was crushing because it meant my eyes had to turn away from myself and toward God himself. Some things that happened just this week, and again, this is always the way it is. You're teaching on something, and what does God do? Never fun. And so you know, when Dale's like, hey, you're going to teach on humility, I was like, ah. Oh. Because <laughs> you know what's going to happen, right? There's going to be a whole bunch of examples in humility. Um, one, one example. It was really hard. Uh, we have this thing on our campus. Um, we have two campuses, South Hills and Saratoga at Westgate. And uh, we have this thing called Safe Car Park. There's about 1,100 people in San Jose and Santa Clara County who are without homes. COVID crunched them in ways that are very, very difficult. And so they sleep in their cars. They're trying to get back on their feet. These are people who are gainfully employed, often families that have no place to go because the rents are so high. And out of those 1,100 people, the city started a program. They wanted to have a place for people to park that's safe. It would be patrolled by police, it would be well lit, and then it would be, there'd be bathrooms and there'd be people to serve these folks. And so they asked churches, would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to open up your parking lot? 12 different churches, one month each. So we signed up for that. So ours is gonna be like in May at one of our campuses. And uh, I work at that campus. Um, that's kind of my community. And uh, somebody found out on the next door. You know what next door is? Next door is awful. It is the worst. And all of a sudden, some people started posting on Nextdoor, this church is going to have these homeless people, and they're homeless, and they're drug addicts, and they're going to steal, and they're bringing them right into our backyard. And look, I get it. Like, you and I drive around. We see things, and it's uncomfortable. I get it, right? But the vitriol that they directed toward us and I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. And so we're trying to respond, and the city's trying to respond. No, these are folks who've been background checked. These are folks who are, they're not drug users. They have a social worker assigned to them, often their families that are really down on their luck. They're trying to get back. We're trying to show these people hope and grace and kindness in the midst of very difficult situations. Um, th there's a social, the police kind of circle, and they, they check to make sure nothing happens. Do you see and then the people would double down and they would come back with even more vitriol and hatred. And, and it was really hard to read. And you know what? I was like, well, listen, I'm a writer and I will get online and I will serve you in the name of the Lord, you know? I just wanted to be like, oh, this, you know, this is what I wanted, you know? They were showing a lack of humility but then my response, what did I want to do? Was I thinking about them? I was thinking how good it would feel and how right I would be online in a forum. Does that serve them? 
Does that move the ball forward? It just feels good. Vindicates myself, makes myself feel good. Do you see what I'm saying? So we had to have these really hard, humiliating conversations because I had to lower myself. Listen, I understand your fears. Let me try to explain. Do you see, even in this, there was lack of humility on both sides, even in myself. This is hard. Social media, by the way, is terrible for this. Social media, the more I started studying humility, do you see a lot of humility on social media? See a lot of people saying, you know, listen, here's an opinion, and I'm not really sure about it. What do you guys think? Most of the time, it's like, these people are Satan, and these people are great. Do you see? The utter lack of humility in online discourse is shocking, which is why you should not be on social media. I would encourage all of you for your sanity to abstain entirely from social media, especially political discourse on social media. That's just my, those, I've been, we, we've, we've done this as a staff often, and it's been very helpful. It's not a good forum because there's no humility. Another example, having hard conversations. In our world right now, there's a ton of hard conversations that need to be had. There just are. I think about even in my life group. There are folks in my life group whose who's teenage kids, or it's a bunch of us as teen parents, whose kids are going through some real tough stuff. Some of their friends are not just deconstructing their faith, but deconstructing their sexuality. They're confused about what to believe about themselves, their own bodies, how they express that. And that's concerning, and it's tough, and it's challenging. And if you're going to have those conversations with your teenager, with any teenager, the position you take is not, let me tell you why you're wrong, but entering with tremendous humility. Listen, I get it. Sexuality is difficult for any human to figure out. It is challenging for anyone. Let's talk. Because I'm as broken as you are. When you have hard conversations, humility is the way to create safety. And safety is the way to have real conversations about real topics. It's the only way. And this Jesus is the model in all of these things. So many applications to this. So many difficult sides to this. And as I reflect on this, why would any human do this? Because here's the thing. Humility costs you. It always costs you. Humility always costs you. So why would any person do this? Why? Why would any person do this? Here's all I have. The only reason why anyone would do any of this is this. This moment. I'm going to read it. And for me, I think it's one of the most staggering moments in all of Scripture. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And Peter, who understands what's going on, says, no, you shall never wash my feet. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The birth the death, the resurrection, the ascension. Those four moments, theologians say are the four most important moments of Jesus' life. But this, if you had to go to five and six and seven, this has got to be on that list. The king of the universe washing teenage fishermen's feet. Humility is the noble choice to forgo your status Deploy your resources. Use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Why should we do it? Because it makes us like Jesus. And his will deserves to be done. Because of what he did for us. If he washed my feet, then what excuse do I have to not do that for? I have none because I know who I am and I know what I was before Jesus found me. Why should we serve in humility? Because Jesus served us in humility. Paul ends this section by saying this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common Sharing in the spirit, any tenderness, any compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking just to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be seized or exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I think Paul, 
If he were here, would you say to me and to you, reflect on that. Let that really sink in. What did Jesus withhold? What did Jesus keep back? Now go and do likewise. Through the Spirit's help. In Jesus' power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled by the reality of Jesus' life, of his service toward us. We know we can't do this without your help. Left to ourselves, we are just self-preoccupied. We spend on ourselves. We think about ourselves. It's just the way we are. God, would you help us with your spirit, even if it's just a small step, to move toward humility because you move toward us. Thank you that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, seized, or exploited, but rather emptied yourself and became obedient, even obedient to death, even death on a cross. We are in awe Help us be like you.